following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. I hold here in my hands a game called Rock'em Sock'em. Has anyone played this game before? Okay, many of you have. Okay, this is a classic. It's been around for many decades. And um, the, the simple object of this game, you have two robots, and they are boxing each other, okay? And you have these buttons that you push, and it makes them jab their, their little fists, okay? And if you get close enough and you punch just right, you can knock the other one's head up in the air, okay? And that ends the round, all right? And, and you can see that it's a well-designed game. Like, you can move the guys close and back and kind of dodge, okay? And, and really what happens with this game is the way it's built, it, it's, it kind of misleads you. And so when you first start playing this game, you try and be real strategic using any boxing knowledge that you have of moving side to side, in and out, okay? But in the end, there is only one way you win this game. You press the buttons as furiously as you can indiscriminately, okay? It doesn't matter how you move. Just press as fast as you can and hope that you win. Okay, now why do I, I share that with you? Because there are times where we get into conversations, we find ourselves falling into these conversations that feel a whole lot like rock'em sock'em, indiscriminately jabbing furiously. Okay, let me paint a picture for you. You have one, one day a thought that comes to your mind, a profound idea, and it's maybe about a current event or your faith or something going on in the world, and you say, wow, what a brilliant idea I've had. What is the best, healthiest, most impacting outlet for this thought? And you say, clearly it's Facebook. (laughs) So you go to your keyboard and you type out what is a masterpiece, an ironclad argument, some nugget that the world needs that's going to shape everyone's thinking, and within about five minutes... The comments on your post come out, and this is what they look like. Okay? Just people, like, all of a sudden, just saying all kinds of things, how you're wrong, what a terrible person you are, how could you think that, and you're like, I went to third grade with that guy, like, I can't believe he'd say something like that. And all of a sudden, everyone's mad and posting, and you're mad, and you're posting back, and sometimes, in the end, what you initially hoped would be this strategic, well-thought-out conversation turns into this kind of indiscriminate, uh, unproductive jabbing back and forth. Or maybe you've had that not just in a social media capacity, maybe you've had that in like, in, like live, in real life. There's a family member, or there's someone at work, and, and, and let's say in those contexts, you've, just, you've tried to be uh, upfront about your faith. You know, you don't want to live with your faith hidden under the surface. You want people to know what you believe, and you've tried not to just like put, rub people's faces in it, but you want them to know that you're a Christian. You're trying to negotiate that delicate situation, but there's this one person at work or this one family member, and they begin a conversation like, hey, you're a Christian, right? Like, okay, this isn't going to go well. I already can tell. 
this is going to be bad. And they say, hey, what about this? I hear Christians believe this. Or, or look what it says in the Bible. Do you actually believe this? Or doesn't the Bible say that God hates these people and that this is wrong? I mean, how could you possibly believe that? And immediately now you feel boxed into a corner and you're trying to have this conversation and, and you're trying to figure out how do I maneuver through it? And before you know, you've tumbled into this heated emotional jabbing back and forth. And long ago, that stopped being a productive conversation. And maybe you've been in that, that setting and you've just said, why do, I, why do I even bring my faith out then? Like, why do I even try and talk to my family members about what I believe? Why do I even try and talk about it with my friends or even try to have, uh, a, be a good witness through social media or try and have these conversations at work? Maybe I should just keep it under the surface. It could be a very discouraging, frustrating kind of situation. Well, these conversations, they don't have to be like a game of rock'em sock'em. They don't have to be like that. And our goal for this series is for us to not only know how to have these conversations in a productive way, but that we feel more equipped in having these. And we understand some of these undergirding truths and principles that so often when we're trying to engage in these conversations, we just keep missing each other. We're just not on the same page. And this will hopefully expose so often what's going on in these conversations. We're going to look at a story today, a story about Jesus that is really, it is one of the most beautiful stories and powerful stories about Jesus uh, written in the Bible. It's in the book of John, chapter 8. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, if you would open to John, chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 2. John, chapter 8, starting in verse 2. Here's what it says. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, that's Jesus, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So, what do you say? This they said to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now pause with me there. We're going to see how Jesus responds, but let's just kind of get the situation and get the context here. Jesus comes to the temple, so he's in Jerusalem at this point. And the temple, when it says he comes to the temple to teach them, he's not coming into like an auditorium or like a sanctuary. That's not how the temple was set up. Um, but there was a very large like porch, like pavement, where someone could sit on some steps and a huge crowd could gather around them. So he's probably sitting on these steps. Huge crowd is gathering uh, close to Jesus and he's teaching them. And then it says the scribes and Pharisees approach. You got to know the background of these scribes and Pharisees. They spend their lives pouring over the Old Testament law, which is the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses. They're pouring over that. They're, they're, they're looking at every single detail and trying to follow it, not just what it says, but then they've created just endless laws trying to make sure they follow that perfectly. Like, so for example, the law, one of the Ten Commandments, 
is um, to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy and that you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath day as an Old Testament law. And so they would say, okay, but what does it mean to work? And they didn't just try and follow the spirit of that law. They created all of these tiny little details. Like if you take this many steps, if you walk this far on the Sabbath day, that's exerting too much uh, energy. So that's work. Or this kind of knot is too... It's too complicated and laborious, so you can't tie this kind of knot. You can only tie this kind of knot on the Sabbath. I mean, tiny little details that they would try and make sure that they were following the law perfectly. It was very self-righteous what's happening here. Interestingly, it's this group, the scribes and the Pharisees, this religious group, that are the enemies of Jesus. And in the end, they're the ones that plot against Jesus and plot to have him executed and crucified. Now, there's a whole teaching just in that concept, but we'll just have to put that on the shelf. These scribes and Pharisees, you notice what they do in this setting, they do specifically to test Jesus. This whole thing is birthed out of their jealousy, their envy, and their hatred of Jesus. So what is it that they do? All of a sudden, they're pushing through the crowd and they're dragging this woman in. They drop this woman right in their midst and they say this, this woman has been caught in adultery, specifically caught in the act of adultery. Now, can you imagine, I mean, just enter into this scene. It says they dropped her right in the midst. They didn't call Jesus over. They pushed all the way through this gigantic crowd, drops her in the midst. Now, can you imagine the utter humiliation and shame they're pouring on this woman. Not only, I mean, think about it. They said they caught her in the act of adultery. And so that, that means that they've caught her in a very compromising position and now they're bringing here, her here in front of everyone. Imagine her shame. And they say to Jesus, Jesus, there is a law of Moses about how we should handle such women. What do you think? So, so get this. They do this to test him. They are using this poor woman and this poor woman's situation. They're not saying, hey, Jesus, we've got a really difficult situation. Can you help us out? They're using this situation. They're using her shame. They're completely disregarding this woman and her humiliation and her shame. They're shaming her in front of everybody so that they can make a point and show their superiority over Jesus. Their self-righteousness is in full bloom here in this story. The other thing they say, there's many things in here that, that just display their judgmentalism and their hypocrisy. One of them is what they say is the law, the law that Moses gave us says that when, says women like this, we are to stone women like this. We're to execute this type of woman. Now, this is a really tense moment they've created with Jesus because there's partially truth in that. That's partly true. In the Old Testament law, there is, adultery is a capital crime. But they've, they've messed this law up. And I want to read you the actual law and see if you see something wrong with the way they've handled this situation. I want you to, to look at Leviticus. It's going to be up here on the screens. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. Look at this. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. 
Do you see something missing in this situation? For a woman who is caught in the act of adultery, there's a party missing, isn't there? They've brought this woman in, shamed her in front of everyone, and their interpretation, these who have probably memorized huge sections of the law, they've said, we're supposed to stone women like this. And the law is actually, it starts talking about the man. And yes, it is a capital crime, but now Jesus is here. He's seeing, and their, their judgmentalism is in full bloom, and they're putting Jesus on the spot, and they're saying, okay, so Jesus... So you tell us, are you going to agree with Moses? Or do you have some new law? Because this is what Moses told us to do. What are you going to say? They're trying to back Jesus into a corner. And what is Jesus going to do? Is he going to bite? He just simply bends down and it says very specifically, he begins writing on the ground. So he's in the temple. So he's writing on the stone pavement. And it says he writes on the, starts writing on the ground with his finger. It's an interesting detail. Is he writing with a stick? Does he grab a stick and start writing on the ground? Does he get a rock and start writing on the ground? No, he takes his finger and he's writing on the stone pavement on the ground. Let's see what happens. Verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up. And said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. So, he, so he's writing on the ground. They start saying, Jesus, Jesus, what, what are you, you going to say? I mean, what, are you going to agree with Moses or not? And Jesus is just down, he's just taking his finger, he's writing. Jesus, look at this woman. We caught her in the act. I mean, if you're ever going to follow Moses, I mean, what do you say? Look at him. I mean, he's not even going to respond. He, he has no answer. He's just, what are you doing, Jesus? Answer our question. What do you say? Finally, he finishes writing and he stands up. He says, um, okay, how about the first one among you who have never sinned? How about the, the, if there is one among you who's never sinned, then you throw the first stone. You kick off this little party. Here, you throw the first one. Let's just start it off. Let's start with the one who's sinless. And then a second time, it says a second time he kneels and he starts writing again on the stones of the pavement. See what he's doing here? He's calling out their judgmentalism. He's saying, okay, um, clearly you all have never sinned. So, um, so that will give. So, whoever has the moral authority because of their sinlessness to punish this woman and call this woman out on her sin, her sin, we'll start with you. Whoever has that moral authority, whichever has never sinned, you throw the first stone and kneels back down. Let's see what happens. Verse nine. But when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin 
no more. Did you just see what happened? He says, uh, okay, so the one who's not sinned, you, you start. Starts writing again. And what does it say? One by one, it says, starting with the older ones. What, what an interesting detail. Starting with those who have seasoning in their life. The most introspection. Maybe the most humble perspective of their life. The ones who, who know truly all that they've, they've done in their life. They, they are the ones that slowly back away and walk off. And slowly the next person, then the next person, then the next person, until finally they're looking around and all of them realize none of them have the moral authority to, to stone this woman and they all start leaving and Jesus has been writing on the ground and I love what he says. He says, hey, where'd they all go? Is there, is there no one left? He's saying, is there, really? I, I thought at least there'd be someone here who was sinless. Is there no one left who has no sin? And she says, no one. Do you realize what is being exposed right here? Everyone has left but one person. Jesus, the Son of God who is actually sinless. He's the only one that can stay. They all leave. And what does Jesus say? He says, okay, oh, there's no one else? All right, well, I better get this going now. Pick up a stone. No, that's not what he does. He turns to this woman and he says the most profound phrase that humanity could ever hear from the words of the sinless one, the son of God. He looks at this woman and says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Now I time out. What's happening here? I mean, these guys are asking Jesus about Moses. I mean, they're, they're pitting Jesus against Moses. Okay, they're saying, you know, Jesus, do you agree with the law of Moses? All right, well, what do they mean, law of Moses? Okay, let's rewind a couple thousand years and let's talk about this for a second because this is critical to understanding how this passage plays out. The, the centerpiece of the whole law that Moses got were these 10 commandments. And it's depicted so interestingly in Scripture. Um, the, all of Israel's camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. They've just fled Egypt. Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God and get the law of God. And God gives Moses these Ten Commandments, but it says that God personally writes them on these stone tablets. He's writing them on the rocks on the ground and giving these two tablets to Moses. But it's not just that he's put the, the, the thoughts in Moses' mind or he's spoken them and Moses wrote them out. God himself is writing them on the tablets. Do you realize how unbelievable that is? Moses is holding two tablets that have the handwriting of God on it. He's looking at God's penmanship right there on the tablets. These aren't just words that God spoke. It's like God's words manifested themselves tangibly. You can run your fingers over the etchings on these tablets and feel tangibly the words of God. If you remember, this is depicted in this, that classic movie, The Ten Commandments. Moses comes back down the mountain and what does he find the people of Israel doing? They have set up um, an idol, a golden calf, and they are, they are worshiping this idol, which the Bible describes idolatry, interestingly, as spiritual adultery. It's being, um, not being faithful to worshiping God. And they're worshiping this idol and Moses takes the two tablets of stone. Do you, do you remember what he does? What does he do with the stone tablets? He breaks them. 
Now, what is Moses doing? Is he just having a temper tantrum and throwing them down to break them? Of course not. He's holding two of the most precious things on planet Earth. It's got the handwriting God. It's the manifested word of God. He breaks them to show them the cost of what they've done. They've broken the word of God. And then what does Moses do? He goes back up the mountain and God restores the tablets again. He, he writes a second time. He writes them down on these tablets. He restores them and those tablets last throughout the rest of the history of Israel. Now, what does that have to do with this passage? I want, to look, I want you to look at one interesting detail back in Exodus that it says, and this is one of the few times it uses this kind of language in the entire Bible. Pull up Exodus chapter 31, verse 18. Listen, this is talking about God. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Does God write with his finger on these stone tablets once? No, twice. See, Jesus is acting out something embedded in this passage to help us understand what's happening in this passage. Because it looks like Jesus... Didn't you just disagree with Moses? What's happening here? Jesus is answering that question by acting this time out where he kneels down and with his finger he's writing on the stone pavement of the temple not once but twice. What's happening here? John gives us another hint. John, the, the book that we're reading, the beginning of John, he describes Jesus as this. The word of God made flesh. Jesus is the tangible manifestation of the words of God. His teachings, his actions, his example, his life. It's like God breathing his truths out on humanity. It's God in the flesh. Jesus is the word in made flesh. And what happens to Jesus? Because of our sin, Jesus himself, the precious word made flesh, made tangible, gets broken. But does it stay broken? He rises again from the dead and God restores him for all time. Jesus kneels down. He doesn't get a stick. He doesn't get a rock. He's writing with, a, with the finger of God on these tablets, not once but twice. And here's what he's saying. It's not a matter of do I fall under Moses. All that Moses wrote was pointing and preparing for me. It's pointing to me. All of the law, all of the sacrifices are pointing to one ultimate sacrifice that will pay for all sins. This Passover lamb that made death pass over is pointing to me, the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus who would die at Passover time so that death may pass over us. He's saying all of the law, all of these things are ultimately pointing to me that because of our sin, the word one day the word made flesh would have to be broken. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, his body would be broken on the cross, but God would not leave it broken and he would restore it back to life. Jesus is answering that question. He's saying, Moses is pointing to me, but he's also pointing this out. That wasn't Moses' law. With the same finger he's writing on the pavement as the same finger of God that wrote those Ten Commandments. He's saying, it was always my law to begin with. See, you have this incredible 
passage where they don't realize who is standing in their midst. The fulfillment of all they've ever studied, the fulfillment of Jesus, the, the Word made flesh, the Son of God, the one, who, the one whose voice was thundering on Mount Sinai. They have no idea who's standing in their midst and in their judgmentalism, their hypocrisy, their inconsistencies in full bloom. They drag this woman into her shame, drop her right before Jesus, and they don't understand that they cannot withstand a debate about the law because it was his. And what is his response? The most life-giving response humanity could ever hear from the one who is sinless. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Here's what you see, and this is so constructive for us. You see that these scribes and Pharisees are trying to back Jesus into a corner and paint him as also judgmental. But he doesn't bite, does he? And he shifts their focus to something completely different. See, so often in your conversations, uh, there's times that you feel boxed back into a corner and they're saying, hey, Christian, doesn't the Bible say that God hates this and isn't this a sin and isn't this bad? And you tell me, is this right or wrong? And they're boxing you back into this judgmental corner. And why does that happen? Because our society, our culture is smart enough to know that we should reject being judgmental. Jesus exposes that. He says, who among you can have the moral capacity, because you're sinless, to cast judgment on this woman? No one has the moral authority to be judgmental. We've all sinned. He exposes that with the Pharisees. It's so easy for our, it's easy for our society, our society is smart enough to know, who am I to judge anyone? And so they, we inherently know we shouldn't go around saying you're wrong and 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 I'm right. Inherently they know, but their only answer, the, the best our society can do, the best this world can do in response to judgmentalism is this idea of tolerance. And tolerance stands on this principle. Who am I to judge you? It's not my place to say that you are right and wrong. And there's some truth in that. But tolerance by itself cannot stand. Because tolerance then says, I can't judge you, so I, so I will choose to believe that you are just as right as anybody else. And here's the problem with tolerance. It doesn't go far enough. It self-destructs in and of itself. First of all, it logically self-destructs. Tolerance logically self-destructs because the same person, if I'm building a worldview on tolerance, I'll say, I am not going to judge anybody else. Everybody else is right, but still the person who is built on tolerance, there is one unforgivable sin. Intolerance. I am tolerant of everybody except those who are intolerant. I will not tolerate those who are intolerant. It logically breaks apart. It doesn't just logically break apart. It practically breaks apart because anyone standing on tolerance, there will come a point when they will say, okay, but that is wrong. There comes a point where they're like, okay, yeah, but that cannot be tolerated because no one is going to advocate for absolute anarchy. At some point, they're going to say, okay, but Hitler, he was wrong. There is some point it practically, we cannot stand on this platform of tolerance in the same way judgmentalism breaks down because true, who am I to judge? Jesus exposes that. But tolerance can't stand either. And so our world all through history has been bouncing to the back and forth between these two answers until Jesus. And Jesus brought a concept completely and totally alien to planet earth and the world has been reeling ever since.
I want to put it like this. If you're a note taker, I want you to write it down like this. Let's define our terms more succinctly. Judgmentalism says this. I'm right and you are wrong. I'm right and you're wrong. That's being judgmental. Jesus breaks that down and Jesus even says, judge not. He says, when you're judging someone, it's like you're trying to get a speck out of, out of their eye and you have a two by four in your eye. I want you to think about that metaphor because it's profound. He doesn't say this. It's like you have a tiny, it's like you're trying to get the tiny piece of spinach out of their teeth and you have a head of lettuce in your teeth. That's not the metaphor because you could effectively do that. If you have a two by four coming out of your eye, do you have the capacity to see clear enough to get the speck out of their eye? Judgmentalism is realizing my vision is off. Who am I to judge? Judge, Judgmentalism says, I'm right, you're wrong. Tolerance says this, I'm right and you're right. You can live however you want. I can live however I want. Let's not discuss it. Everyone's right I'm, that I, I'm never going to speak against someone. I'm right and you're right. And then Jesus brought in something completely different. It's called, it's called grace. It's the answer the world has waited for all through history. It says this, there is one who is right. And he died for our wrongs. It shifts the entire focus off of me and my opinions and my thoughts and you and your opinions and your thoughts and it shifts the entire focus onto this one story of Jesus Christ who he was sinless. It's about him and he died for all of our wrongs because we all have them. There's one who is right and he died for our wrongs. See, look at Jesus' wording here to this woman because it's profound. If he was being judgmental, at the end, he would have said this, go and sin no more, and then I will not condemn you. Go fix your life up. Clean all this up, and then we'll come and we'll talk. Your, your, your sin offends me, woman. Your shame, it's repellent to me. Go fix yourself, and then I will not condemn you. That's not what he said. If he was tolerant, he would say, neither do I condemn you, Go and live however you want. He says, why would I condemn you? You can live however you want. Jesus said something completely and wholly different. The Son of God, the sinless one, in the midst of probably the, the greatest shame she's ever felt, he kneels down, protects her, and says, I do not condemn you. He starts with his acceptance and his love and his forgiveness and says, in the midst of all that, she's done nothing yet. She's done no work to earn this. He steps in and says, I do not condemn you even though you're in the midst of your shame. I love you, I accept you, I forgive you. Now in response to that, sin no more. Do you see the profound shift in order there? That is what transformed this universe and it's never been the same. Can I encourage you in, in your conversations as you go out can you see that the battle, like the, the battle is, often people are trying to put 
maybe you in a position where you're being judgmental and, and you're, calling, you're calling one group out because of their, their tolerance and how that breaks down, another group out because of their judgmentalism. Who do you think you are? You're, we're fighting on that level and it's so unproductive when Jesus has modeled for us what that conversation looks like. Turn their focus to Jesus. Jesus left his followers behind and he says this, you are to be my witnesses. That's legal language for a court witness. Do you notice what he doesn't say? You are to be my prosecutors. He doesn't say, uh, consider me the Supreme Court and you're the, the many judges before it gets to me. You're to be my judges. He says, you're to be my witnesses. Our role is simply to point to Jesus and say, look, I know this is a tough issue. Can I tell you the one thing I know more than anything else is that I am a sinner and look what Jesus has done to save me. Can you take these conversations and, and take a, ship, a, a hard right turn to the gospel? Can you interrupt as they're trying to box you into a corner or you're feeling like you don't know how to respond and can you just take them to Jesus and just be a witness for what he's done? Can you interrupt the argument and tell them the narrative of humanity that Jesus himself accepts all of us in the midst of our sin? Because here's what we know. No one goes and gets cleaned up and then comes to Jesus. No one goes and gets their life and pulls their life together. Jesus is not tapping his foot saying, clean up your life and then let's talk. It's in the midst of their sin. The first step is realizing Jesus does not condemn them. He loves them and he's forgiving them. And it's in response to that, then he goes to work in their life. May we walk out of here taking the message, the unique history-altering message of the gospel, that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us and saved us. You know, I don't know if you've ever been around um, a moment where you felt like someone was being really judgmental or maybe just been around someone that you're like, they're kind of a judgmental person. I mean, how would you describe their life? You'd say, oh, maybe they're just kind of angry all the time. They're just angry. They're mad at everybody. And they, when they say things, it's kind of rude and kind of blunt and brazen. And they have, you know, they're just always constantly, hey, when are you going to fix up your life? And, why? and they're always just frustrated and angry and they, they, they don't wait on anyone. They don't have any grace for anyone. It made me think of, when you think of a judgmental person, you kind of think of it like that. But can I remind you, what does the Bible say happens to someone the longer the Holy Spirit is working in their life, the longer they're following after Jesus, what is the fruit that grows from that life? Here's what it's described. Love. More joy. More peace. More patience with people. More kindness. And goodness and gentleness, and self-control. Judgmentalism is not the seed that grows those things. Tolerance is not the seed that grows those things. Only the message of grace is what grows those things in our heart. May we be ambassadors, witnesses, first and foremost of the one thing the entire Bible points to. 
the fact that the sinless one accepts us in the midst of our shame and then takes ownership of our life. May we simply be witnesses to that message before anything else. You know, in that story, who's the one that we most relate to? You know, the reality is every one of us is that woman. That's us. In the midst of our shame, Jesus protected us, defended us, advocated for us, forgave us. And may we take that spirit in the name of Jesus out into this community. But maybe you're here and you say, look, I, I feel like I've got all this shame. You don't know all the things I've done and how I'm trying so hard. I'm, I'm here at church because I'm, I'm trying to do better and I'm trying to be more worthy of his love and I'm trying to gain his acceptance and I'm, I want to be, be accepted by him and get to heaven. And, and can I just say, hear the message of this passage where Jesus is kneeling down before you in the midst of your shame and he's saying right into your eyes today, I do not condemn you, I forgive you. Why? How can he say that? Because he's already shown you how he can forgive you. It wasn't for it was that his body, the word made flesh, had to be broken and then was restored. And because of that, now he can say, I don't condemn you because I paid for your sins with my broken body. And so today, can you just simply receive that gift, that grace upon you, that forgiveness, that restoration, that payment for your sins? Can you receive that today? I want to lead you in a prayer. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And maybe today, maybe today you've, is the first time you can accept the true grace, the true grace that Jesus is offering you. Just accept his forgiveness. It's by what he did that we're saved. And if that's you, I want to lead you in a simple prayer. Just pray this right there in your seat. Make these words your words. Pray this prayer right there. Say, Jesus, thank you for saving me. Jesus, thank you for what you've done, how your body was broken for me. Your sacrifice on the cross paid for my sins. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your compassion that I don't deserve. I put my faith in you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.